0: Joined as always by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Legally Speaking, here on CFAX 1070 with Mulligan Defence Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me. So I've already advised our audience, but we're going to have a little bit of a change of pace with respect to our timing today. We have a special feature that's going to be playing instead of our 11 o'clock news at exactly 11 today. So you and I, I believe, can have one long segment without a commercial break, and we'll break it around 1050 or 1051 if that's agreeable for you. That sounds just great. Thank you. Yes. Perfect. Let's dive right in. Very interesting. A case with respect to a Saanich police officer fired for, does this say falsely
1: certifying officers to be drug recognition experts? Uh, Indeed it does. Uh, And this comes out of the uh, annual report from the British Columbia uh, Police Complaints Commissioner. Um, The report, I should say, generally isn't all uh, negative. Uh, Victoria, for example, seen a a decrease in complaints over the past uh, uh, two years of uh, reporting. Maybe that's a function of not having enough police officers. But <laughs> Interesting. I didn't not, know. That. Not everything. Not everything is negative. Um, but uh, this uh, sto- this uh, report, which the it uh, was included in the annual report, is of some uh, significant uh, local concern. Um, and it involves a unnamed, and that's interesting, and we'll come back to that, hmm. senior Saanich police officer who was responsible for um, recertifying uh, other Saanich police officers as drug recognition experts. Uh, and that would come into play uh, for drug-impaired driving investigations. Uh, and unlike with alcohol, where we've got readily available um, Tools to test to see whether somebody's under the influence of alcohol, roadside screening devices, and more accurate machines back at the police station. Yes. Where there is a belief that somebody's impaired by drugs, anything from marijuana to cocaine or something, um, those investigations rely upon, uh, to a large extent, um, testing being done by officers who are certified to be drug recognition experts. And the idea is that they can make a demand and require a person to go through a series of physical uh, tests looking for things like, you know, eye movements and coordination and estimation of time, various things which could um, allow for determination as to whether somebody was impaired by a drug. Mm -hmm. And the senior police officer here, uh, according to the Office of Police Complaints Commissioner, Um, was certifying officers and recertifying officers as drug recognition experts without doing the required um, testing uh, and training to make sure that they were competent to do that work. Oh, no. And and doing so um, intentionally and over a number of years.
0: So what does that mean Uh, for the findings that they've given to courts? Well, it's a
1: problem. Um, the officer uh, was found to uh, 14 allegations of deceit for knowingly signing off official documents containing misleading information. Um, so he was found to have engaged in these multiple instances of deceit and discreditable conduct. Um, and um, ultimately, the officer, who again remains unnamed, which is an interesting thing, hmm. um, he, ma- he managed to retire before the disciplinary hearing. And so he was retroactively reduced in rank and retroactively fired. Wow. Uh, but he didn't even show up at the hearing. And so the problem here is that many of these things rely, of course, on, um, police acting in a trustworthy fashion, right? Yes. Much of the justice system sort of is premised on that being so. And so really what needs to be looked at here, because this goes back apparently years. The the final number indicates 2018, but it it sounds like it predated that. Um, And so what I think needs to be done is you need to look carefully at, well, what, what did these officers who were improperly, knowingly certified to be experts when they did not meet the requirements? Did they give evidence in court? were people convicted on the basis of that and then other things occur under the motor vehicle act that may never have gone to court because there are various kinds of driving prohibitions that can occur and be imposed on people that don't uh, result in a appearance in court. Interesting. And some of those are shorter ones, but they can have a major impact on people. People can lose their employment. You can have entries on people's driving records for a professional driver that might mean they can't get employment. And so It seems to me they shouldn't be silent about who this was. That person should be identified. And then people who were affected, not only by this officer's conduct, but the various other officers whom he certified to be drug recognition experts without doing what was required for them to meet those requirements. Also, we need to make sure that people who were impacted by them are notified so that we can hopefully correct some of them. Um, And so it's important. It'll likely affect hundreds of people. Um, And uh, I think a starting point would be starting the effort to identify who was affected, Um, so that we can try to make that right
0: now of course as defense counsel you know how all of this works Uh, i i don't so if it turns out that i was uh sentenced to a, a a term in prison or if i was found guilty because of a process that relied at least in part on the special training and experience of a police officer trained in drug recognition what happens to me do i do i get set free or or i suppose it'd be
1: case by case basis but how
0: does that all fit together
1: well, part of the challenge here is timing. Uh, and this is another thing which was addressed in this annual report. Our efforts that are underway to try to speed up uh, some of these outcomes from the Office of the Police Complaints Commissioner. The process, and we've seen this in high-profile ones, like with the former chief in Victoria, yes. just how long the complaints process can take. It's got multiple stages, and it can go on for years. Yes. And this case went on so long, the officer was able to retire. This dates back to 2018 and before. We're getting the decision now. Uh, And so people affected by it, right, if somebody was convicted, likely they've served their sentence. They've lost their job. Whatever has happened has happened to them. Um, Now, I think we need to try to identify those cases, correct what we can. Uh, But the other point made in this annual report um, is that the complaints commissioner um, has made submissions to the government in the process to modernize the legislation to try to speed up uh, the process. It Mm. needs to be a fair one for the officers, but it just can't take years because by the time we get this, what do we do about that? It's pretty cold comfort if you find out that you were improperly convicted on the basis of evidence from somebody who wasn't properly qualified three years ago. Right? The damage is done. You've been convicted. You've served your sentence. Um, You know, that, that may lead to civil claims But what else do we do? Uh, But I would say as a starting point, um, there's no policy reason that I can see why we would keep, for example, the identity of the officer secret. Hmm. Uh, Somebody who's been found to have engaged in 14 uh, allegations of deceit that's found to have been substantiated, uh, discreditable conduct, uh, and uh, has been uh, fired as a result of that behavior. Uh, i'm hard pressed to see why you would not want to make that person's identity known, both in order to um, maintain confidence of the public uh, but also to start the process of identifying who who what other people were impacted by this officer's conduct and by other officers that um, he was certifying other legitimate questions of course would include things like were the other officers who this officer was uh, intentionally uh, deceitfully certified. Were they aware? I was going to ask. Orders? Yeah,
0: like like, are there fourteen officers out there who would have known, or or were they also impacted unknowingly by this? And wouldn't they wouldn't they recognize that their training was insufficient? Or like, I, I have a lot of questions on this. Yeah. Suddenly,
1: yeah. So th- those, I think, are important questions. They should be asked, but I don't know how we ask them if we don't know who any of these people are. Huh. And I don't know how many of the impacted people are going to take any steps. How are they going to know whether they were somebody who was impacted? And I suppose if you were during that time period subjected to uh, some prosecution uh, out of Sanich uh, for huh. uh, alleged impaired driving by drugs, you should probably be making some inquiries uh, because obviously there was uh, somebody really rotten at the uh, core of how that system was working there. That's deeply troubling.
0: Up next, Supreme Court of Canada. And this is a case I do recall when this litigation was commenced. I had the opportunity to speak with the Highlands District Community Association. I see it has come to the end of the road,
1: though. Indeed. So this was a uh, the final stage of some litigation concerning the construction of a mine, really, I think, a rock quarry yes, um, in the Highlands, which was uh, unpopular with many of the local residents. Probably not surprisingly so. Um, You know, there probably aren't a whole lot of communities that would like a new rock quarry, uh, probably in the same category as prison or uh, various other things uh, (laughs) uh, that might be unpopular. Um, And so in British Columbia, the local municipal government doesn't get to decide whether a mine is going to be approved because, frankly, you probably would get zero mines approved. Maybe someplace wants the employment. But in British Columbia under the mines act it's the inspector of mines who can certify and approve a mine for construction and in this case the uh, mines inspector um, looked at various things that are required under the act I mean there it's quite wide ranging everything from you know the reclamation of the land and effect on water courses cultural history and um, all manner of things which would be looked at in deciding whether a mines to get approval or not but the Mines inspector indicated that global warming or climate change wasn't part of the process in determining whether a mine should be approved. Yeah. And so that's what got latched on. It went through a judicial review in the Supreme Court, and then uh, that was successful from the community association's perspective. And so they went to the BC Court of Appeal, and that was unsuccessful. Uh, and so then they tried again getting leave to go to the Supreme Court of Canada. And the Supreme Court of Canada uh, just finally came back and said no to the leave application. Um, And I guess a few things are bound up in that. First of all, the point people should know is you don't get to go to the Supreme Court of Canada simply because you don't like a decision to get (laughs) there. You need to ask permission, and the court will generally grant permission where there's some legal issue of kind of national importance, right? Yes. Uh, And this wasn't that. Uh, The other, I think, takeaway here is uh, attaching... Uh, climate change, to whatever point it is you wish to argue, doesn't necessarily uh, turn your local issue into an issue of national importance.
0: Yeah, I, I was also right? skeptical of the rational link between climate change and one specific rock quarry in Highlands when this matter came up a while ago. And I've, I've noticed actually a pattern in uh, environmentally focused litigators uh, continually trying to get jurisprudence uh, that recognizes climate change among these issues. I'm not aware of any, but I know that there are more and more attempts, it seems.
1: Yeah, you, you see it tacked on everything from the design of Clover Point. Yeah. Uh, uh, whether we have plastic bags and <laughs> yeah. sandwich, or whether there's a rock quarry in the Highlands, right? none of <laughs> which sorry. are likely to be the like, core problem. So
0: and, and I love how we had to get a real climate, climate change scientist. Change. Andrew Weaver had to come out and say, no, climate change will not be altered by closing off half of Picnic Point. We had to get an official scientific expert uh, opinion on that.
1: No, you're you're going down there with your plastic bag, shopping bag with your uh, picnic lunch. You're not going to do it one way or the other.
0: (laughs) All right. Uh, We've got uh, about four minutes left. An employee of a car dealership losing a job amidst COVID-19, now suing, seeking
1: some $40,000 pay in lieu of notice. Yes, indeed. So this was an employee of a car dealership in Vancouver. She had a job doing marketing, web-based marketing and other marketing. Uh, when COVID struck, she wound up being laid off. She'd been working there for about eight months by that point, uh, and she wound up receiving CERB for a number of months. Um, and the, as you may recall, the time period for which somebody could receive CERB was extended at that time, and the time for which an employer was permitted to like lay somebody off was extended before they were deemed to have been terminated. Oh yeah, um, And then she had various communications by email saying, you know, can you guarantee my job back to which She would get responses like, we can't guarantee anything. The, the economy is in turmoil. <laughs> we're doing our best. Um, and then eventually she was deemed to have been dismissed um, after she was uh, on the uh, serve. I think it was for four or five months. Uh, and so she sued seeking, um, eight months of notice, um, some, I think $50,000 she wanted, uh, and ultimately the judge concluded that um, she wasn't entitled to that much uh, additional pay in lieu of notice. She, the judge found that $25,000 was an appropriate amount, um, but then deducted from that the $10,000 in CERB payments she would have received over that uh, period of time so I thought the case was notable and worth commenting on uh, because um, it deals, first of all, with that issue. How do you deal with CERB payments and how yeah. do we factor into uh, notice? Because the concept is that an employer just can fire an employee at any time, presumptively, for no particular reason, just like an employee can for no particular reason just say, I quit. Indeed. I don't want to be here anymore. Yeah. but. From the employer's perspective, they either need to give notice, right? Sufficient notice to the person, hey, I'm terribly sorry, but we have to eliminate your job, you know, six months from now. I'm just telling you so you can look for something else. Or if you don't do that, pay the person in lieu of the notice. That would be an applied term of contract of employment. Mm-hmm. Um, and how long that would be would depend on things like how long have you worked there for? And how unique uh, is the nature of your employment? And could you find some other Uh, comparable employment Um, and so here was this decision and it dealt with how long and how much that should be uh, and particularly in the context of somebody who had several months uh, of CERB payments and how that should um, factor into it Um, so that's the decision she got uh, some payment but not the amount she was entitled to uh, and there was to be a deduction for those payments that she did receive from the government.
0: Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. As always, we appreciate the benefit of your expertise and insight into these matters. Our slightly truncated segment this week. Looking forward to another full conversation next Thursday, as always, my friend. Thank you so much. Stay safe and have a good day. All right. Bye now.